0: Let me just start with this. Preaching this week and next week for me is substantially more difficult than the last two weeks. You think know if I'm a dude and I got to stand up in a room as a bunch of ladies and tell them to submit to their husbands that's hard that's intimidating right I don't want to do that I don't want to be that guy who has to stand up in front of a bunch of women and say submit to your husbands right no no guy wants that and I, and, I, and then I, I arrive in this week and it's actually exponentially harder for me because this is now personal this is personal for me. I have to stand here as your pastor dudes and I have to tell you what God says we're supposed to do with glad hearts and know full well that I haven't. Right? I have to walk in the rawness of my failure as a sinful human being as a husband to my wife and at the same time say to guys this is what we're called to. This is so much harder so that's where I need to start this morning and while it's, it, it again is challenging to prayerfully deliver two weeks to the ladies on submission to husbands, I'm personally finding these two weeks much more challenging to my own heart and I hope that you guys who are in the room will experience the same challenge today. Theologians like to ask the question what is the glory of God? We talk about the glory of God like it's some radiant essence floating out in the cosmos somewhere. The glory of God, the brightness, the what is it? The shininess of God, right? But that's not what glory is. Somebody's glorious. Glory is a word that it's like God has weight. If you had a very still uh, lake and you dropped a five thousand pound boulder into the middle of the lake. Um, just see in your mind the splash and the displacement of the water and the ripples coming out in every direction as the weight of the boulder displaces the water. That is the the glory of God is the weightiness of God. It is his, his uh, mass is the wrong word because he's spirit and he doesn't have mass, right? But it's his weight. It's the weight of his presence And so we say, well, what is the glory of God? And we ask questions like, well, what what kind of things glorify God? And and I love the answer. Uh, One of the early church fathers named Irenaeus said this about the glory of God. He said, the glory of God is man fully alive. Listen to that. The glory of God is man fully alive. And while we would not say that human beings fully alive because of Jesus is the exhaustive glory of God, it's not everything that the glory of God is, we would certainly affirm the truth that man fully alive is glorious to God, It's how he designed us to be when we operate in the fullness of that, the, that design parameter. And so John 10, 10 Jesus said, I, I've come to give you fullness of life, abundant life, right? This is a calling of God. And it's a high calling as men. I want I want to be fully alive in Christ as a man, as a husband, as a dad. I want to be fully alive. And so if we're going to pursue fullness of life in Jesus, it necessarily means we come to him on his terms, not our terms, right? So then we got to stop and go, okay, what are the design parameters? What are the definitions about things like femininity and masculinity and love? How do we define these realities according to God's design, not according to what we think is best and what this series has been about, right? Blueprints in the book of Ephesians is all about how God designed life to be. And so let's take a minute and let's just go back and let's just define femininity, masculinity, and love really quickly this morning before we go any further. We said this the last two weeks, femininity, biblical womanhood is the freeing disposition, to receive, affirm, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in appropriate ways. And we, we unpacked that two weeks ago. We began to look at that and talk through it a little bit. By the way, just because we're doing Secret Church with no AIDS this morning doesn't mean that my notes are not in the version app. So if, you, if, you, if you're there, you're following along, that's still available. Where you can cheat and use a little bit of technology this morning, it's fine. Femininity. The freeing disposition to receive, affirm, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in appropriate ways. But here's the here's the call to manhood. Here's biblical masculinity. We've not unpacked this together on a Sunday morning yet. It's the call to the glad assumption of responsibility, gentlemen. To lead courageously and to love sacrificially. It's the call to make war on our enemy and on sin. It's a call to safeguard the weak and to protect and serve wholeheartedly. It's a call from our father, our heavenly father to nurture a passion for Christ and those around man under my care, under my stewardship until we all attain to the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. That's a lot, isn't it? It's a lot. You go, man, that's not fair. The women's definition is really small and the guy's definition is really big. It's because I'm a dude. I've thought a lot about the dude side. I haven't thought a lot about the girl side. Spend some time with Jen. You guys flesh out a long, paragraph-long definition of biblical womanhood. We'll run with it, okay? But I have more time to think about biblical manhood because it, it pertains to me, right? So there's femininity, there's masculinity. Those two things are in cooperation with each other. And then we go, okay, so what is Love. What what do we do with love? What is this in in the mix of marriage and covenant? Okay, so here's the definition I think makes the most distinction for us in our culture because love is a willful choice. It's a choice to sacrifice yourself for another. Stop. Love is a decision. It's an act of the will. It's volition. It's not the feeling. The feelings are great. I love the love feelings. And for a long time as a a teenager and a young adult, that's what I thought love was. And I was so in love with the idea of love, so in love with the feelings of love, but I didn't really know what love was. Love is the act of the will. Love is the decisions, the volition. I am deciding to love and to give myself up, to sacrifice myself for another. And then for us as followers of Jesus, we can do that because we're confident that all our needs are completely met in Christ Jesus. We're free to love. Because he is everything for us. He gives us all that we need. Our needs are met in Christ Jesus, and now we're free to love, right? So love is a willful choice to sacrifice yourself for another. Now, in your brain, latch on those definitions. Let's go back to the Ephesians text and read it again, starting in verse 25. Ephesians 5:25 to 33. "Husbands, dudes. love your wives." I, I, I might do a sadty paraphrase at some point and just replace all masculine. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we're members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So just as with the text to the ladies, these commandments are not conditional, gentlemen. That means you're not excused from what God's commanding you to because she's failing in her commands. It's not conditional. So go ahead and just like bump that out of your brain right now, right? And, and so what, what the word says, we're supposed to love like Jesus. We're supposed to love like Jesus. And love is that willful choice to sacrifice yourself for another. So uh, guys, women need women Want love and security, guys. Listen, one huge factor in our success as husbands is learning to stop thinking that women are dudes. Like, well, I don't have that problem. I know she's feminine. No, you got to you got to start thinking on the level of what she wants, what she needs, and stop defaulting to your setting on I want respect right? She needs love and security. You got to learn to think like her in that area. I say in that area because I'm not expecting any man in the room to learn to think like a woman in all areas. It's impossible. The guy that understands women is one. Okay. You don't have to understand them in every way. Just start with this. Just start with this. Okay. The need for love. And that means necessarily the next step is that you die to yourself. This is how Jesus most clearly demonstrated his love for us. He went to the cross. His death on the cross exemplifies what it means to choose to sacrifice for the good of someone else. And I hear guys all the time, lament about how much they love their wives and they say things like this when it's just the guys when we're just hanging out together like man doesn't she know i would take a bullet for her i'd lay down in traffic for her i'd die for her then do it gentlemen do it die to yourself Die to yourself. Nobody's asking you to physically die for your wife or take a bullet. Jesus is commanding you to follow in His footsteps and lay down your life that she might flourish. And so, man, you think I, you just got to have that new boat? I just got to have the boat. But the, but but she keeps saying, "But the house needs work. Like it's the, the bedroom's leaking." Yeah, but I really want the boat. D- die to yourself. Die to yourself. Right man, I just, I just really got to have, I really want that zero point turn 60 inch pneumatic control mower for my yard. But she says we can't afford it. That's autobiographical, by the way. That's, that's, that's. Die to yourself. Die to yourself. It, loving her like Jesus means dying like Jesus died. Loving her the way Jesus loves means dying the way Jesus died. And it's not a one-time deal. You don't go to your cross once and then you're done. And it's like, well, I finished. Woo, we're done. It's like every day, every moment, hour by hour, minute by minute, dying to yourself. Nobody's asking you to lay down in traffic, dudes. Just put aside your selfish desires and serve and sacrifice. So, so right away we see biblical masculinity is sacrificial. It's sacrificial. And then here's the next point: biblical masculinity is authoritative. It deals with this issue of authority. We're talking to the wives about submitting to their husbands because he's been given the role of headship. So let's talk about that authority for just a minute and what it looks like. Because I've worked with college students and young adult guys for like two decades now. And, uh, and among the guys, many of them want to be in authority, but almost none of them want to be under it. And here's what I tell them all the time. You're gonna be a terrible authority if you don't learn to be under authority you think you need to just skip that process of learning to be submitted to somebody else and just jump right to being the boss, you're gonna be a terrible boss because you'll be capricious. So authority flows uh, to, uh, by the way, I should stop. Our salt guys over here are an anomaly. They're not largely like that at all. I'm so excited about these guys because they, they they, they're not like that. Legit. Like I didn't look at you guys and feel guilty and then be like, I need to say something nice about you. It's actually in my notes. You guys are not like that. And I love that about you. But here's this axiomatic truth regarding this reality. Authority flows to and through those who take responsibility. Right? Just think about your first job. And you show up early and you stay late and you work hard and you just take responsibility. And what else can I do, boss? And you know what happens? You move up. Because that employer goes, that's a trustworthy person. I can give them more authority. This is the nature of this reality. This is why our definition of manhood starts with the glad assumption of responsibility. Not the begrudging, uh, complaining, having to take on of responsibility, but the glad assumption of it. Because authority flows away from those who avoid uh, responsibility or try to evade responsibility. You don't drift towards authority. You drift away from it, right? And so it's the glad assumption. Gentlemen, you take responsibility by sacrificially serving the way Jesus did, not bossing people around, but by loving them and serving them. That's called headship. That's called headship. And it's not defined by gender, simply by virtue of the fact that you're male and your wife is female. God is the head of Christ and Christ is not female. Right? So this raises an interesting point because Christ is co-equal to the father. Nevertheless, the father is the head of Christ. And so this has to do with the way that God established things according to his design. did not have to do with the fact like dudes are better. No, it's not true. This is just the way God set it up. So Jesus models for us this way of authority that sacrifices itself for those who are under that authority. Listen to Philippians 2 one through 11. This is Paul writing about Jesus's authority and what he's modeled for us. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ Jesus, if there's any comfort from love, if, you've, if you had any participation in the spirit, any affection or sympathy, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being of full accord and of one mind. So we all need to be on the same page about what he's about to say. That's what Paul's saying. Let's be on the same page about this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others as more significant than yourself. Let each of you not look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Okay, let me stop and explain this. Jesus coming to earth, the incarnation was humiliating. It was humbling. It was a place of humility, right? And so Jesus being fully God came to earth and took on the body of humanity. And this is, this is humility for, for the Godhead to, to be one of us. Right. And so he's saying, uh, though he was God, he didn't count a quality a thing with God, a thing to be grasped. He didn't, he didn't come to earth wielding his Godness going, worship me. No, stop talking. You over here, serve me. Right. I'm God. That's not how he came to us. That's not how he came to us. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't wield his godness over everybody, but he emptied himself and took the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being in human form, he humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. So get this, guys. The path to exaltation is the path of humiliation. You get to the place where it's like, Man. My wife loves me. She says good things about me to other people. That never happens. That's awesome. I, I love that. that. That exaltation comes from your humility, a place of humbleness. It's, it's, the, it's the doctrine of Christus exemplar, which is a Latin phrase which means Jesus is our example in everything. He's our example. So we're looking to Jesus. My God, I mean, I really want my wife to submit to me. Um, Well, here's the deal. I cannot and must not demand it of her. I have to show her how to do it just as Christ demonstrated submission for me. I have to model it. I have to model it. Jesus submitted. He served even unto the point of death and he's our example and he's our authority and he models that for us. So biblical masculinity knows how to bleed for others. Biblical manhood knows how to bleed for others. And then he says this, Paul says, the goal of all of this is that she would be radiant and without blemish, right? Cleansing her with the washing of the water of the word. Gentlemen, do you lead your family spiritually? Guys, do you pray for your wife regularly? Here's the harder question. Do you pray with your wife regularly? Pray with your kids. Do you lead them? He says that he might present her to himself without spot or wrinkle or blemish, which has nothing to do with her never aging again magically and only looking like a 23-year-old model for the rest of your lives. It has to do with her spirit, her relationship to Jesus, the inner person of her heart, just like we talked about last week in 1 Peter 3, right? It has to do, uh, this, the, one, of the, one of the mandates in the Garden of Eden that God gave to the man was to work and cultivate, right? To work the, the garden and cultivate everything there. And that means to, to cause it to grow and flourish and help it to grow and flourish. And that edict was never rescinded. God never said, stop, stop cultivating things. Stop working hard to cultivate stuff. Never said that, right? So are we as husbands and future husbands, um, are we cultivating a mindset that one of our chief works in life, one of our greatest efforts in life is to cultivate in our wives radiant flourishing? Is that our goal? Sometimes it means saying yes to her. It's something she wants to do or wants to get or thinks we should do or, or uh, whatever, however it impacts the family. It means saying yes. And sometimes (laughs) it means saying no. And a wise husband will study his wife to figure out when is the time to say yes and when is the time to say no. A lazy husband will just say yes all the time or no all the time. We have to study. Are we cultivating radiant flourishing? Love her. Paul says, love her like you love you. Love her like you love you. What is the golden rule? Do unto others as you would have them do unto You, right? How much more in the covenant of marriage should we treat each other with that level of respect? Consider it self-interest, guys, because the word says she's your body. You you, want to treat that well. You want to take care of it, right? So consider it self-interest. I love, um, if you've ever read any of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, so smart. I love the guy. He's really brilliant. But he says this. I, I pulled the quote in to the notes. He says, on the practical level, the whole of the husband's thinking must include his wife also. Uh, The whole of it, everything we think about as dudes when we're married needs to include our wife also. He must never think of himself in isolation or detached from. The moment that the man does so, he has broken the most fundamental principle of marriage because in a sense, in that moment, the man thinks of himself in isolation and in a sense, he's broken the marriage. He has no right to do that. There is a sense in which he cannot do it because the wife's part of him. But, but if it happens, he's certain to inflict grievous damage upon his wife. And it is damage in which he himself will be involved because she is part of him. When we do that, guys, when we get selfish and thinking only about ourselves, we're doing damage not only to her, but ultimately to ourselves. That's what Dr. Joan, uh, Dr. Lloyd-Jones is saying. We're, we're doing damage to us, Right? So consider it self-interest. Any man in his right mind is going to take care of his own flesh. Even if it's just in the sense of feeding and clothing his own body. Because we know that if we don't, we suffer, right? And so in the same way, once we know the biblical fact of this unity of the marriage covenant with our wives, if we're in our right minds, we nourish and we cherish our wives because she's part of us. She's part of us. Inseparable. Every week when I when I study a text and prepare to preach I read probably a dozen commentaries right and the internet makes that so much better because used to I have to go find the big books and or or borrow somebody's or like amass a library. And then you sit down and you're leafing through this big book. to. Uh, and, then, and then if I'm going to read 12 commentaries, that's quite an exhaustive effort, right? To find 12 different commentaries. And, and so now I can just go to the internet and type it in. And it's so much easier. But uh, this week I was reading Ellicott's commentary for English readers on this passage. And, and I just thought this was so profound, so good. He said, the love of Christ for his church is such that he counts himself incomplete without her. Now, I first read that, I thought, that's a little bit heretical. I'm not sure I believe that. And then he references Ephesians 1, verse 23. And I went back and read chapter one again. I'm like, no, he's right. He's right. The love Christ has for his church is such that he counts himself incomplete without her. And he raises her up to be one with himself that that he bears with her weakness and her frailty that he draws her on by the cords of love that he gives himself up for her. And then he says this, here's the practical application. This is what just really pierced my heart. He said, only so far as a husband shows the same love in perfect sympathy, in chivalrous forbearance, Only so far as a husband shows that kind of love in aberrance for tyranny, a hatred for tyranny, and a willingness to self-sacrifice has he any claim to lordship or headship. So, So let me go back and just say it again so that it just burrows deep down into your soul. Only so far, husbands, in that you love the way Jesus loved sympathize with your wives, you're chivalrous towards her and forbearing towards her. You hate tyranny or the idea that anybody, including yourself, would try to lord it over her and force her to something and demonstrate a willingness to sacrifice. Only in those things do you have any right to claim headship. Did I mention that this is a hard sermon for me? Guys, can I get an amen? Please, you're with me, right? Whew, man, man her welfare and her happiness become dearer to you than your own welfare and happiness, men, at the risk of oversimplification. If I could just boil down all the language here about sanctifying her and washing her with the water of the word, I would just say this. You are the gateway to your home. You are the sentinel stationed at the door. You are the guard that God has put over the entry point of your house. You're the sentry on duty, right? And, And so therefore, whatever comes into your home and has a place or takes root has to come through you. Your job is to guard your home and not let sin or your enemy gain entry so as to take up residence. What that means is that it's my job to spot check my kids' mobile devices, Randomly, right? It's my job to um, to see, like, think about what kind of entertainment comes into our house and is allowed inside our four walls. It's my job to to be the, the the guardian of our culture, our family culture. I hope this is hitting home for some of you guys. Still committed, maybe to your own way and what you want, but this is a shift. That has to happen in the hearts of men. This is the shift away from boyness into manhood, where a man begins to take up the mantle of leader and protector and cultivate those under his care and help them flourish, right? And so our definition includes, right, a nurture for passion, a nurturing a passion for Christ and those around me and under my care. So that is to say, inviting sinful things, even passively allowing them is a violation of that definition for us as men. If we let those stuff into our home, it's influencing our family. We are failing, we are failing. And some of you men need to wrestle with this calling. And, and it may be this morning, that some of you will hear this and you'll simply dismiss it out of hand. Um, let me just say, if you ignore it, you do so at your own peril, gentlemen, at the peril of your now or future family. And even those of you who hear it uh, and heed it and try to embrace it will struggle to live it. I can promise you that. I can promise you you'll struggle with this because at almost every point along the way, Here's what will happen to you guys. You'll hear the sermon, you'll go home, maybe you'll listen to the podcast again, and you just dig in and you say, Lord, I want this to be true of me. I want to be that kind of man. I want to prepare myself for a wife, future wife, my now wife, whatever that situation is for you. And you go, I'm 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 all in here. And then the enemy will come to you and will whisper lies to you and deceits to you. And he will attempt to distract you and divert you and destroy you. And then, when he can't do that, he'll do the worst thing he could do, which is to tell you the truth. He'll buddy up beside you and say, You're afraid. You're afraid. You're fearful. Fear of failure. This is the thing all men have in common fear of failure. The single greatest fear that men live with is the fear of failure because men are hardwired by God for success, to conquer, to vanquish, to overcome. We're hardwired for it. Can't get away from it. So failure is this huge fear. And and, and so nothing affects us so deeply or discourages our hearts or crushes our souls as does failure. It's just this huge fear that we carry with us. It causes a man to question everything about himself. Do I really have what it takes to be a man? There's a question in the heart of every dude. Do I really have what it takes to be a man or am I a poser? My sons, from the time they could crawl, have wanted to wrestle with me. Do you know why? Because it's the form that the question takes when you're little. find the first man that I know, dad, and then wrestle him so that I know if I'm getting stronger, right? That's the question. That's the question. And now the answer to that question in our home is yes, gentlemen, you're stronger than dad. Don't hurt me, right? (laughs) Don't hurt me. But wrestling doesn't answer the question for long as we grow, gentlemen. The answer for them to the question of whether they're stronger than dad is yes, but that's not the question. The question becomes, these are the questions, uh, can I overcome so as to find my place in this world, to make a living and care for myself and maybe a wife and a family? Am I a man? Can I conquer that mysterious creature, that alluring, haunting beauty called woman and convince one of them that I'm worthy to love and respect? Do I have what it takes to be a man? Can I father and mentor and love my own children without repeating the missteps of my father and his father? Will they be healthy people in the world who function well and live and love happily, or am I going to crush them with my own insecurities? Am I a man? We are terrified most days, and we don't even have the words to articulate what it is we're afraid of. We're scared. We're so afraid of failure that we develop sinful tendencies to find strange comfort in the failure of others. we would rather laugh at somebody else's failure than acknowledge that I'm afraid of failing. And this is why guys pour themselves into the things that we do well and like and enjoy and we neglect the things that we don't do well and thus do not like and do not enjoy. And for most men, a place we get respect, the place is our workplace. It's whatever we do professionally, right? Maybe our hobbies, We get respect and we we, we know what the metrics are in the workplace and we we find success there um, in our career. We find acceptance and respect and admiration, and all that's outside the marriage, right? So the temptation is uh, eight to 10 hours a day with people who respect you in an environment where you're affirmed and you know that you're doing well because there are measurables and metrics there to gauge it, and then I get paid for doing it too, (laughs) and I haven't gotten fired. In fact, I got a raise, and my boss praises me, and we go, okay, I get that. That's Better, I feel that, and then that's far more attractive to our hearts than home, where the metrics, if there are any, are muddied and hard to sort out, and we don't know where we stand. It's hard, it's so much harder, right? And so, as a result, men tend to choose the path of least resistance, a result of the fall and the curse in Genesis 3, and we throw ourselves wholeheartedly into our work and our hobbies to the neglect of our marriages, children, and homes. This is the reality, guys, and we've got to break the cycle. So I'll leave you with this reality and then a word of encouragement. There are three options. When a man is faced with a real challenge, and this is a real challenge, to be real men in the sense that Christ has called us to, there are three responses to a challenge. And every single one of you in the room today will choose one of these three. Here they are. Number one is denial. Denial says... Life is not happening, and I'm not really needed. Life's not happening. I'm not really needed. There's not a problem. That's denial. That's choice number one. Choice number two, abdication. Abdication says, yeah, life is happening, but I'm not really needed. I'm not, I'm not really needed. It's actually more deliberate. Deliberate than denial. This is dereliction of duty. It's worse than making a bad decision to choose to ignore the need. Abdication, denial, abdication. And here's the third choice, gentlemen, is engagement. Sloppy, messy, clumsy, stumbling engagement. Just do it. Do it. Life is happening and I am desperately needed. And by God's grace and the power of the spirit, I will respond. And I may not get it right, but I'm going to try. I'm going to try. This is the calling of biblical manhood. This is the path of righteousness that too few men in our culture tread upon. This is the, the path for us. So choose well, gentlemen, choose wisely. I'll simply add that options one and two, denial and abdication are not true options for men who follow Jesus. Options one and two will not garner you respect or admiration from any other man, by the way. Though men who've embraced denial and who've embraced abdication often find the company of other men in those categories. It's unfruitful, it's unfulfilling because now you have to live with a code of silence because nobody wants to make the other guys in your fraternity uncomfortable. And while you may think you found the comfort and solace of other men like yourself, what you've actually ended up with is a lesser mistress with five o'clock shadow. So, choose to engage. Choose engagement. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So marriage is a picture of Jesus' relationship to his bride, the church. Back in the Old Testament, uh, God was using Moses to give a picture. If If you've read the Exodus narrative, you know that at one point God said to Moses, all the people were complaining, you brought us out in the desert to die. We're dehydrated. We don't have any water. And God said, go strike that rock at Horeb. Right? And Moses did. He took the staff and he struck the rock and water poured out and the people of Israel were able to drink and, and they were like, oh, oh, okay, I guess God does care about us. We shouldn't, right? And then like five minutes later, they're like, God hates, hates us and we're going to die, right? Because It's like crazy. Later, they're in the same situation again. They're complaining. And Moses goes to God and says, what do I do with these people? And God says, speak to the rock. And Moses in his anger and frustration strikes the rock. And there's this interesting conversation with Moses and God later where he says, dude, it's in there, dude, right? He says, dude, you screwed up the picture that I was giving a watching world of what I'm like. You see in that first episode where you struck the rock, that's a picture of Jesus and his first coming. And, and he's going to die on the cross. He'll be struck. He's the rock from which the water of life pours forth. And, and you struck the rock and that's a picture of Jesus in the first coming. And then the second coming, you just have to speak because in the second coming, Jesus will open his mouth and the sword of the spirit, the, the words of his mouth will slay his enemies. You, you have ruined the picture, Moses, and you don't get to go into the promised land now because you ruined the picture. So pictures are a big deal to God. And so Paul says marriage is a picture of Jesus and the church. And all I'm saying to you is don't screw up the picture. Don't screw up the picture. Play the man, gentlemen. Lead and love like Jesus. Second Samuel says, be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. Paul would say to you, gentlemen, in 1 Corinthians 16, be alert, stand firm in the faith, be men of courage, and be strong. Deuteronomy 31 says, be strong and courageous, gentlemen. Do not be afraid. Do not be terrified of your enemies, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Lord, we need that this morning, that promise that uh, you have called us to be strong and courageous, and that we don't need to be terrified of our enemy, And we don't need to be terrified of our wives who are not our enemy. We don't don't need to be terrified. It's you who goes with us. You said you'd never leave us. You'd never forsake us. Lord, would you work in the hearts of every man in this room, whether husband or single, to move us to the place of faith and not fear. And we would choose to engage. We would choose to stumble and fumble our way through the engagement and we'd learn. We would not choose denial. We would not choose abdication. We would choose engagement by the power of your spirit, by the grace of your goodness, Lord. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.